HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to HRN on Tour at Charleston Wine and Food 2022. I'm Kat Johnson, and today we're broadcasting live from the heart of the Culinary Village. This episode is made possible thanks to the support of Ben's Friends and Indigo Road Restaurant Group. So now I'm excited to have this conversation, like kind of for personal reasons, because like I I want to do exactly what my guest is doing one day. Um, so let me introduce him, Matt Lee, who. We we've ha- we pretty much have him on every time we come to Charleston. So you can count on me. It's a tradition. Uh, we had to have him here. Um, but Matt grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, and the backstory, as many of our listeners probably know, when he and his brother Ted left to attend colleges in the Northeast, they missed the southern foods of their hometown. So they founded the Lee Brothers Boiled Peanuts Catalog, and they started shipping boiled peanuts and other you know, southern ingredients like grits, fig preserves. Duke's mayonnaise. Oh, I mean, just like the thing you can't live without. Um, But then that led to um, becoming authors and, um, you know, experts on all things southern travel and food. And um, we'll talk a little bit about their cookbook boot camps that you, you host to sort of help chefs figure out how to tell their story and navigate the, the early stages and well, really all of what it takes to publish a cookbook. Um, and then I also have to shout out one of my favorite things you guys have done, which is Hotbox. Um, the the, uh, the sort of like behind the scenes world of high-end catering, which if you, you don't know is wild and the book is incredible and like you'll read it in a day. I, it's, it's great. And then you also, with Ted, um, helped produce the Southern, Southeastern Wildlife Expo. So, like, add event producer to the list as well. Um, so, all that, everyone knows the Lee Brothers, but I reached out to Matt last week and said, I'm coming to Charleston. I kind of want to have some conversations about farming in the area. Who do you know? And you gave me a list of a lot of people that I need to reach out to. But then you're like, also me. And I was like, what? So, Matt. First of all, welcome, and second of all, what are you doing? Well, this is kind of a reveal, um, because... I, I did this with Hotbox. I get the scoop. Yeah, the Heritage Radio Network always gets the scoop on uh, breaking news. Um, 
which occurs pretty slowly in our world. It seems like every six years it takes us to do a cookbook or to come up with a new idea. But Hotbox was the most recent thing, I guess, that we've talked about because it was just so interesting to embed ourselves in a world, a food world that was not either home cooking or restaurant world or publishing, food publishing. And, um, And we came away just, you know, amazed and mesmerized by these, you know, highly stressed out food crafters in a not very comfortable situation, which is you don't know where your kitchen's going to be from night to night. Um, But yeah, so this farming thing on the heels of that, that was 2019 that that book came out, Hotbox. Um, And so we've been looking for new projects and COVID happened and destabilized publishing and live events and, and uh, we've been reorienting our lives much more toward live events. So that was really like a pulling the rug out from under us. Um, but a happy accident, through a happy accident, um, and through our work with the Department of Agriculture, the South Carolina Department of Agriculture, you mentioned we program the cooking stage at Seawee. We don't program Seawee. Mm-hmm. You, you overreach there. <laughs> Seawee is like... Rain it in. It's like this. It's like 40,000 people in downtown Charleston. Yeah. And with so many moving parts and a 25 year history I think at this point Wow! but our small piece is the food piece which is really an auspicious wonderful thing to be in charge of as this spring food and wine and festival season commences um, and putting on stage both farmers and chefs mm-hmm. we love that we love to it used to just be chefs doing you know pretty mundane cooking demos and we wanted to set it in motion. We want to make it more about people and storytelling. And it's the Department of Agriculture, so this is it's a no-brainer. Like, chefs with the farmers who love them and vice versa. Totally. And all about an ingredient. So the demo focuses on the ingredient that that farmer harvests or, um, or um, collects. Like in the case of um, a fisherman like Mark Marhefka um, is like always on stage because uh, he's so magnetic and so articulate about, um, you know, the ways in which uh, fishing impact, you know, the environment and food culture and restaurant life. And um, but uh, so through our work with the Department of Agriculture, a f- family friend, my parents age asked me, could I find him a farmer to farm 45 acres of development buffer on uh, beautiful Johns Island, South Carolina, a sea island pretty close into Charleston. Like just, it's where the um, uh, BJ Dennis's event was held yesterday on Johns Island at Fields Farm, which is just down the road from this property. And I spent that summer looking for a farmer. And it turns out that in this modern era, um, the farmers who are younger and really doing a great job just killing it, producing bushels of beautiful radishes and produce year-round in this environment, um, really are doing that on one or two or maybe five or maybe I can think of one uh, farmer, Harleston Tolls, is doing a great job on Edisto Island with 10 acres. Um, But uh, small scale so that you can control everything. in this environment, if you don't want to spray Roundup everywhere, you need to be on every single square foot of land um, with uh, shade cover, um, you know, uh, landscape cloth, um, you know, tilling. He, uh, a lot of them happen to be no-till, right. you know, values there. But um, 
but in any case, the weed pressure is so extreme in the summer. I mean, it's just beginning, but... Um, and I plant that seed now because I want to come back to that issue to describe the strategy I'm taking on my farm. But in any case, I couldn't find a young farmer to do 45 acres because it was too much acreage. And 45 acres isn't worth even looking at for uh, you know the kind of farmer who makes up the largest part of South Carolina's farming community, which is row crops, a uh, rotation of peanuts, cotton, soybeans, corn, you know, the basics, um, and uh, they don't need 45 acres. Um, and John's Island has gotten out of the truck farming business. There was a time as recently as the early 1990s when a ton of tomatoes came out of there, but not heirloom tomatoes, like kind of, you know, truck farming, like, you know, hardware tomatoes, the kind of tomatoes that make it onto a, a you know, fast food sandwich. Yeah. Um, and that era is now over. I think we can declare it over. And happily, um, uh, farms like Spade and Clover, um, Fire Ant Farms, um, uh, uh, Side Eye Limehouse is out there doing great work, Rosebank Farms, um, uh, Story Farms, smaller scale farms just doing it a little bit smarter on a smaller scale and just making it work, very diversified. Um, there are usually animals involved. Um, uh, there's, you know, the priority is really just producing tons of beautiful vegetables year round and that is a heavy lift that's a huge struggle it requires every ounce of your time and and care and attention and my hats are off to them so i came back to this on this opportunity by the end of that summer and realized this was 20 or fall of 2020 like i should not turn down this opportunity to um you know take title not title, but take ownership in a way yeah. of 45 acres that close to my suburban lit existence in West Ashley. And so um, I said, yes, I would like to do it, in fact. And um, I did the one thing, the one gesture with older men that you have to do is to, like, you know, show, don't tell. And so I bought the tractor and had it delivered from, um, you know, it was a Craigslist purchase. It was used, of course, um, had it delivered to the property. And I didn't even really tell him. And it just kind of showed up. And that was like my stake in the ground that like, yes, I can do this. Because, of course, up to that point, he only knew me as someone who like, you know, dabbled in writing cookbooks. And, yeah. You know. He's like, are you serious? And you're like, the tractor's there. Tractor's there. All right. I'm ready to roll. We're rolling. So... Um, what did you just, because to your point, this 45 acres is that's like a weird in-between zone of, it, it's too big to be a market garden, a no-till space. You would just like, you'd have to have a, a lot of people to make that even right. feasible. And then it's too big, uh, too small for like a large commercial farmer. So how did you decide then what are you going to grow in that space? So I kind of, as with everything me and my brother have ever done, we kind of worked our way backwards and let... Um, either the customers or the land or the situation kind of speak to us and drag us in it, into it. And um, the first thing I did was um, I uh, planted some rye seed as cover crop um, because in this kind of subtropical climate, you can grow grains in the winter um, very well. And so you could plant wheat, barley, rye in November and December. It sprouts and has a beautifully happy winter without the weed pressure without the need for irrigation. 
Um, and then it springs up right about now in March and April and is ripe and ready to harvest in May. And I planted that, um, I kind of made a rig to tow behind the tractor. I didn't have the right seed planting device. I used like a lawn spreader that just like scatters the seed. And I t attached some palmetto branches to it to try to like, you know, worry it into the dirt. And, um, and I dragged that through about um, eight acres, the best eight acres. And it rained like as I was finishing up. And by the, you know, four days later, it was sprouting and it was like these light bulbs going off like, oh my gosh, I can do this. And I don't need any help. You know, I didn't uh, ask my wife to pitch in. My brother was not present. Like, you know, it was just me, myself and my tractor. And I was able to plant rye. And I was like, Eureka. Well, turns out I did a very poor job of planting that rye. It wasn't thick enough and it wasn't drilled in. You know, and it kind of did what it did that, that winter as I began to further process, like, what my options were. And um, by the following fall I had figured out to buy the grain drill um, that eight, will plant 18 rows at a time 7 inches apart and 1963 John Deere you know Craigslist equipment um, heavy metal like totally able to leave it out in the pouring rain and it's okay you know and no problems with uh, repairing that computer that's inside of it that's right there's no you don't need a, a license <laughs> or permission to repair it <laughs> Pretty key. Pretty key these days. No more. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the old equipment is so fascinating. That was another part of it is um, uh, personal health. Like, I just felt like I needed to be more active and get out there. I've got three little boys, and so I don't have a lot of time, and, um, and I don't have the inclination to exercise as much as I should, but this forced me to it, you know. I, it's a process of growing older and just like learning how to manage yourself better. Mm. <laughs> and like, and we all had to go through, no matter where you were, what you're doing, like the, the pandemic started and there were things in your life that you couldn't do anymore. Like to your point, like uh, live events aren't going to happen for a while. So what do you do to fill your time? Right. And that outdoors imperative was very strong. Um, but uh, so by that following season I had figured out that this would be my game and in part because it's uh, something uh, fairly unique to this area that you can't it's one of the you know more north northernmost places where you can play this winter habit cereal grain game right um, and expect not just to um, harvest a nice crop of rye that I could sell to high wire distilling or to some of the bakers and brewers and distillers that I know and love throughout the southeast but um uh, but even, like, worst-case scenario, you can plow it under and call it a, a net positive as a cover crop. I mean, that's what a lot of farmers in this region do in the winter with their fields that they plant in soybeans is they'll plant um, rye mm -hmm. um, just to, you know, keep soil in place. And I think the government, you know, pays you $78 an acre to do that um, sure. uh, through their conservation programs. But... Uh, so that's what I'm doing. And, and, and part of the ingredient that makes it possible for me, because I don't have um, 24 hours a day to, you know, just worry this farm, is that um, every step in the process from planting to harvesting, I can do me, myself, and I with um, a device towed behind the tractor. And so the big drawback for me is the, um, you know, the fossil fuel intensive nature of it always being a tractor thing. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it's an efficient diesel tractor and I can pay to mitigate 
um, you know, the, the carbon offsets. Um, and, you know, and it still feels like an efficient system. And especially, and I've never done it successfully, if I can harvest a shitload of grain this May, then I will have, you know, proved the concept. Even if I end up selling it down the road to the, the guy with four mules or with, you know, to someone who has to feed animals, like it will still uh, yeah. will, will have been a kind of net positive just because of the low inputs that, um, that I've been doing. I, I do no um, uh, herbicides at all, mm -hmm. no irrigation, <laughs> no nothing. Um, everyone's like, well, what about the deer? Um, and it's like, well, there's just too many acres for it to actually matter. Like they can have some. <laughs> yeah, they can actually have some because <laughs> I planted 22 acres of oats, wheat, barley, and rye. And that's just like a lot. It's yeah. just a lot. And that's that's the max that you're up to at this point, 22 of the 45? So, right. There's, um, there's sandier. It's sandy loam is the kind of um, texture of the soils there. And it ranges from soil that looks pretty dark and healthy to you know it looks like playground sand yeah <laughs> it's old ocean bottom right and we're just about 100 yards from salt water so it's very sandy um but uh but there's still so much you can do in that environment and fire ant farms anthony natoli who's one of the people i recommended you you put in this chair instead of me <laughs> He uh, does this, uh, he's one of those savants who just does so much on two acres, and he's just down the road. Cool. And his soil looks like gold, because he has been, like, worked working that. Yeah. And he's no-till. I mean, it's miraculous what he's able to accomplish. And that's part of what you're doing, too, is, like, over time, hopefully what you're doing then, like, makes that soil even better, and you, can, you could do more down the line. Right. I mean, it, it always reminds you of just the... The difference between agriculture in North America and in Europe, like here, the people who had thousands of years of experience, like extracting, um, you know, sustenance from the land, were exterminated or forced to move westward, and we lost that thread. We just don't know. We're just learning everything from the ground up. Mm -hmm. um, in Europe, obviously, they have like longer threads of knowledge there and you travel to some micro region in France and you're just blown away by how like everything just rises up out of the soil and the vineyards are thousands of years old and it's just insane and you know we always have to reckon with the fact that we don't have that here and mm -hmm. it's you know it's all of our faults and we may never recover half of the knowledge that, that was contained here but um, uh, certainly like two years into farming as a neophyte like I'm just barely figuring things out do you think that your farming adventure now is going to end up in a similar uh, sort of realm of work as Hotbox where you're going to write about it that was what I told my wife and my brother and everyone else who was not involved in this like that at the very worst if I survived you know the equipment and the <laughs> ever-present danger of being maimed or killed by the equipment, <laughs> that if I survive that, that the, um, uh, you know, at least I was content farming, that, you know, there would be some great story to come out of it, and um, whether it's a book or not, I just don't know, but, but yeah, that's, that's a possibility. I, I'm now thinking, though, um, this much into it, that I'm really fascinated by the ways in which um, the culture of old white men... Um, is so weird and um and not just my landlord but um these these 
farmer men just turn up like in your fields like without invitation uh, or notice and they are there to try to um, uh, assess you know are you okay and can I be incorporated into their system of trading favors and it's all about like borrowing equipment borrowing favors um, and you know for the most part they're very generous um, but they're also very cautious and um, some of them are very hard to understand and they speak in this weird language and code that is just so inscrutable and I'm a little distracted by that as far as like a book because I don't think that's been unpacked um, I would read that book it's insane and the, the Things the, you need to know when farming. The, the That's something they don't cover in Farm Beginnings programs. Um, and on the one hand, the um, the g- extreme generosity, like my place is your place, but what they don't tell you and is that there are triggers that will end that very quickly and just for a moment. But um, if I borrow something from the tool shed and don't give advance warning about that, it doesn't matter that there's 400,000 pieces of junk in that tool shed. That dude will want that one thing that I borrowed and will discover that. Even if I borrow it for 15 minutes, it's like insane. And um, will flip out like just like, you know, apoplectic uh, kind of anger um, because I violated the code somehow. The code that you're still trying to figure out. The code that I'm still trying to figure out. Um, And... uh, I mean, it's there are some funny stories. Um, uh, so, Joseph Fields is um, one of the elder farmers of Johns Island, and um, part of the Gullah Geechee ownership and heritage, and one of the first orga- certified organic farmers in the state. Um, and he showed up on the farm the other day. Um, again, no notice. Um, I just see a pickup truck coming down and clouds of dust and. Um, and he stepped out with a, a friend and colleague um, just to pay a visit. And we've been collaborating on a project to um, uh, harvest rice. Um, he he did, had a successful harvest of dry land rice just last fall, but wasn't able to, had to harvest it by hand. And now I have this 1960s combine that tows behind the, the, the tractor, which is an unusual piece of equipment. Uh, most smart farmers will have a a big like self-propelled you know diesel powered giant combine Mm -hmm. that does the job um pretty well but needs a whole maintenance routine and everything around it so i thought i'd sort of game that by getting this esoteric old school tow behind combine um that has a you know huge group of enthusiasts in a facebook group of angry men and uh (laughs) so Joseph took an interest in the combine because um, in theory if I get it running by this fall he can harvest and I'm going to test it out this May on my crops Cool. Um, so he showed up um, with a friend who's a famous um, uh, uh, woman farm advocate whose name is escaping me right now who's wearing a veganist shirt and so uh, just for fun we dragged the combine out of the barn and started it up to kind of throw off the winter dust and see if it worked and um, and as uh, we you know we sort of stood back because it's like chitty chitty bang bang this thing just starts moving and there's belts and pulleys and fans and gears and stuff and um, it started up all right and it looked great and we were like celebrating and um, 
and uh, Joseph's friend was videotaping it, and a half-dead rat got expelled from the machine from an auger um, because it had been, like, hunkered down in there and um, bled to death on the ground in front of us, and it was like... Farm life. God. And, yeah, well, uh, everyone kind of chalked it up to that. Um, Joseph didn't bat an eye. He's like... I I was the one most traumatized. (laughs) It was really heart-wrenching for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's endless stories on a farm, and um, I think the biggest story is survival. Yes. You have to outlive the farm. Mm. Um, my last question for you about this is a sort of like, what has that process been like for you to reach out to Highwire bakers to kind of say like, I'm doing this now, you want to buy some stuff for me? Everyone is super supportive, and um, Chris Wilkins of Root Baking of Atlanta may it rest in peace Um, he's moving on from that Uh, has been a great source of advice and connecting me with farmers in western North Carolina Mm -hmm. and uh, you know small communities in Georgia who are already doing what I'm doing but very successfully and for many decades Um, and I've reached out to several of them and they are very you know everyone's very helpful with the information yeah Everyone wants to be seen and to be helpful for the most part. I mean, there isn't a lot of competition out there at this scale. Um, I sense if the stakes were higher and everyone had thousands and thousands of acres and millions of dollars were at stake, it might be a different deal. But even there, I've met a lot of farmers at different sizes and degrees of proficiency and and found them um, uh, to be largely, um, well... Uh, largely generous and um, humble and sharing people, but also sometimes there's pressure points and weird hang-ups that I'm still trying to understand. Mm. Well, but. I'm glad that you're doing it and exploring this. And <laughs> Well, I'm happy to share the information that yeah. I know, little as it is, and the equipment, too. I um, love it. Well, yeah. Oh, and we should talk sugar cane sometime. Yes, I planted about half an acre of that, and it was donated by Side Eye Limehouse. Cool. He said, come cut as much as you want. So I went down the road. Yeah. And then he came back and said, can I borrow your bush hog? I need to, you know, it's like, and then that economy is up and running of our favors, and I'm pretty sure I'm always in his debt. Um, but, uh, But it's fun to be a part of that, and just to, like instead of being a journalist spectating on it third party like to Mm. actually be involved is a real uh, privilege and thrill well it makes me think of the way that you wrote Hotbox I mean you guys embedded yourselves and really understood what that industry is like so I don't know I'm waiting for the book that's all I'm saying All right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well Matt thank you so much for joining me thanks Kat for having me tell me about your latest adventure I I think this is super cool and hopefully we can come see the farm absolutely Yeah. yeah Uh, there's no fencing. Just walk on in anytime. Just drive on in in the pickup truck. Yeah, like everybody else is doing. Um, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to HRN's live coverage of Charleston Wine and Food Festival. Once again, I'm Kat Johnson, and we're so grateful to the festival for having us back in the Culinary Village. This is our sixth year running, and you can listen to all of the festival coverage on our podcast, Heritage Radio Network on tour. Find it on heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Yay, thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.